All right. Uh, Turning your copy of God's Word to Psalm 137, and then also stick a finger over in Obadiah, which means you're probably going to need to go to the table of contents. We'll be exploring the book of Obadiah today. I think as most of you guys know, we are currently in a study on the Old Testament minor prophets, and today uh, we're going to be tackling the eighth book in our study. So we are not too far away from the end of this. We have four books left. Most of them, with the exception of one, are very, very short. Um, And so what we're looking at over the next few weeks is we have about four or five weeks now before the beginning of Advent, the season of Advent, and we will uh, be looking at these, what what are called the post-exilic prophets, these next four books, uh, over these uh, last weeks of the year before Advent, but we will not have enough time to get them all done by the start of Advent. So uh, once we get into Advent, we're going to take a little break from the Minor Prophets. We'll get into an Advent series focusing in on the incarnation of Jesus and his birth and everything uh, that leads us ultimately to Christmas. Uh, but then at the start of the year, we will pick back up And we'll have just a few weeks finishing out the Minor Prophets, and then we will begin, and we'll be in for all of next year, the Gospel of John. Uh, So I'm really looking forward to that and digging into John's Gospel, which is, uh, as probably most of you know, very different from the other three Gospels in a lot of ways. So excited about that. Today, the book of Obadiah, um, and man, I have wrestled with this book this week. Like, for whatever reason, this has been the hardest book for me. Of, of all these minor prophets, not, not so much like understanding what Obadiah, Obadiah is about, but like figuring out how do you preach this book? Like, what do you do with the contents of this book? And I've had like 40 different possible like directions we could go this week in my mind. So I've just kind of been like sitting with it all week. And, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to jump in this morning and, and we'll see how it goes. But um, that's where we're headed today. Uh, last week, if you were here, we wrapped up the book of Habakkuk, uh, which we saw bears many similarities to the Psalms, right? Um, not only the Psalms of lament, but also what are called the Psalms of imprecation or the imprecatory Psalms. We talked about those last week. Those are the Psalms where the psalmist praise curses on his enemies. And we read a really famous one last week, Psalm 139, which uh, begins in this beautiful way, like, God, you've knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And then at the end, he goes, God, would you slay all my enemies, right? Would I, like, I hate them with complete hatred. And so you have beautiful worship of God, but then also these like challenging statements, right? I hate people with complete hatred. What we're going to do this morning to get us started is we're going to read another psalm of imprecation that has direct bearing on the book of Obadiah, but it's also perhaps the most stark and brutal of the imprecatory psalms. And uh, it's Psalm 137, so it's not going to be on the screen. Turn there with me uh, in your Bible. And man, we're going to be using the Bible a lot this morning, guys, so just keep it in your lap, keep it open. We're going to be doing Old Testament, New Testament, all over the place. So Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. A psalm of imprecation. The big question that people often ask is, what do we do with this? Right? If the psalms are like the prayer book of the Bible, if on some level we learn how to pray from the psalms, then should we also be praying in this way? Should we also be saying things like this? But to begin by asking that question, like, while that's an important question, should we be praying in this way? If we start with that question, what we're actually doing is we're skipping over some critical steps, right? If we're studying the Bible, there, there is a correct order in which we study the Bible. We don't just read a text and immediately jump to, what do I do with this? What we do is we begin by reading and observing what's on the page and, and, and we do the work of establishing context. Without like correct context, we cannot accurately interpret or apply the word of God to our lives. Like We have to understand what's going on on the page. Who, what, where, when, why, how, all of these questions are essential. And so in the case of Psalm 137, who's writing this? Right? That's just a basic natural question we should be asking. So many of the Psalms were written by King David, but when we get to Psalm 137, this is traditionally believed to not be David, but to actually be Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a contemporary of the minor prophets that we've been studying most recently, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Nahum. And what's interesting about Jeremiah's life and teaching is that he saw both the pre-exilic and the post-exilic world of Judah. Like he was there before the Babylonians invaded, and he was there after, during the time of the exile. And so Psalm 137, as you may notice, is both a psalm of lament as well as a psalm of imprecation. Like it begins with the people expressing their grief like we've been carried away into this foreign land and our tormentors want us to take up our lyres, those little kind of angelic harps that like David used to play. They want us to take our musical instruments and like perform for them. And, and yet we're filled with sadness and grief and they want us to like dance and sing songs of joy about the Lord. Like sing us one of your songs from, from the place where you're from. And it's like the last thing that they want to do. Like, like, and, and the psalmist is saying, God, may I never forget Jerusalem. May I never forget where I'm from. Like, may this, this place where I am, may this always be a place where I feel out of place. Like that I'm missing something because I'm not really where I'm supposed to be. This is also a community psalm. It's a community lament. It's not I, it's we, these plural pronouns. We 
sat down by the waters of Babylon. We wept when we remembered Zion. Zion's another name for Jerusalem in the Old Testament. And so most of this psalm makes sense to us, a people grief-stricken over their captivity, longing for home. That all makes sense. But then we get to verse 7. Look at verse 7. And suddenly we get something out of left field here. Because this is in the middle of the Babylonian captivity, right? The psalmist says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. So when the psalmist makes that startling statement in verse 9 about dashing children against the rocks, he's not talking about the Babylonians, which is who he's talking about at the beginning of this psalm. No, no, he's changed. Look at verse 8. He's talking about a daughter of Babylon doomed to be destroyed, and that daughter of Babylon that he's talking about is Edom, the land of the Edomites. So with that in mind, Let's go to the book of Obadiah. And I would tell you what chapter, but there's only one, right? Obadiah is 291 words long. It is the shortest book in the Old Testament. Um, And this shortest book in the Old Testament is written to and about a, a very specific group of people, the Edomites, the Edomites. So we're gonna read this morning Obadiah verses 10 through 15. We'll have this on the screen this morning as well. Obadiah, verses 10 through 15. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shames shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother, In the day of his misfortune, do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you, and your deeds shall return on your own head. The word of the Lord. Obadiah, the Edomites. All right, so let's talk history here because you may have noticed that this all began with the writer of Obadiah, whether it's Obadiah or not, we're not entirely sure, but the writer of Obadiah begins here in verse 10 by saying, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob... He calls Edom Jacob's brother. So who is Jacob, right? Jacob was one of the patriarchs of Israel. If we go all the way back and we just walk through the basic family tree of Israel, it all begins with Abraham, God calling Abraham out of the land he was in to come to a new land. Abraham then, though, has two sons, One is the first, Ishmael, and the second, Isaac. But then Isaac also has children. He also has two sons, and one is named Esau, and the other is named Jacob. 
So just a quick rundown of family tree. When we're talking about Jacob's brother, in a literal sense, we are talking about Esau, right? Who is Esau? He's not just his brother. If you remember the story, he's his twin brother. He was only seconds older than Jacob. Um, In Genesis 26, before these two boys are born, Genesis 26 in verse 21 It says, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. There, the one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, right? They had no sonograms at this point in time. They didn't know what's going on in there until it, the birth actually occurs. Behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. So from the beginning, literally in utero, these two were fighting with each other. These two were wrestling with each other. And Rebecca received this two-part prophecy from God when she inquired of the Lord. He said, there are two nations in your womb, not just two babies, but there are two nations that are coming out of you. And the, the, the older shall serve the younger. And that's exactly what happened. If you remember the story, Jacob swindled his brother, as well as his father, his elderly blind father, out of his rights as the firstborn child. And then from there, lineages come from these two nations of people, the Edomites and the Israelites. And if you've read you, the Bible, you know that this theme of like brother against brother is a recurring theme, especially in the Old Testament. I mean, the very first Murder that takes place, according to the Bible and the history of the world, is one brother killing another brother. And even to this day, you have the descendants of these two, Ishmael and Isaac, fighting it out in the Middle East. It's been going on for millennia, and it's still going on. Family conflict tends to be the most brutal. And it's not just something we see in the Bible, is it? It's something we see in our own lives as well. Family conflict. Some of the people that we have the most struggle with, some of the people that we reserve our harshest thoughts and words for are our family members. And that is not something unique to us by any stretch of the imagination. Of all uh, the American troops killed in all wars, over half of them were killed in the Civil War. And some of the most brutal things that we've ever seen worldwide have been situations where essentially people of the same country, like neighbors, brothers, you could say, are killing each other. Several years ago, uh, Lindsay and I uh, traveled to Rwanda in Africa, in East Africa. And if you remember, Rwanda was the site of a, an unbelievable genocide that took place in, I think, 1994. And, I mean, it was something where, like, 
a million people were killed in the span of like 10 days in the streets, mostly with machetes, because brother had been pitted against brother. And it's unbelievable. If you go over there today, now it is somehow one of the most peaceful countries in Africa. But there are all of these monuments around the country that have been set up to help the people who weren't alive then or have been born afterwards or whatever, who who were small, to not forget what happened. And what they've literally done is they have taken the bones of people who were killed in the genocide and they have literally constructed monuments out of the bones so that you walk into a building and it it is nothing but bones surrounding you. And it gives you not only a sense of the horror of all of this, but, but the sheer scale of how many people were killed. We went over there and somebody on our team noticed that there were no like dogs anywhere. And one of our guides said, well, the country got rid of dogs after the genocide because there was so much death in the streets that the dogs were just eating people in the streets. They couldn't even have dogs after this was over. It was so brutal and horrific. That stuff's happening in our world today. That wasn't that long ago. It's also happening in the pages of scripture as well. Craziness, things that seem like they should never happen, have regularly happened throughout human history, and so often it's been brother against brother. Edom was a smallish kingdom to the southeast of Judah And there were not natural boundaries between the two countries. There wasn't a mountain range. There wasn't a river that separated them. And so they were constantly getting into fights with each other over territory, into these skirmishes. And so they were just bitter rivals throughout pretty much the whole of the Old Testament. However, if you fast forward to the time of the exile, you fast forward to the days of Jeremiah, the days of Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, that we've been studying most recently, Babylon, right, is the nation that's coming in to overtake Judah. They're the ones who are knocking at the door, not the Edomites. For the Edomites, Babylon was also a significant threat. Like, they're right next door to Judah, and so they're also in danger of being overrun by the Babylonians. But rather than fighting them or just giving in to the Babylonians coming in and invading Edom, They were able to actually cut a deal with the Babylonians that made them allies. And so as a result, when the Babylonians eventually overtook Jerusalem, guess who was waiting in the wings? Guess who was, in a sense, grabbing onto their heel coming into Jerusalem? The Edomites going, finally, like finally somebody's coming in and taking care of these people we hate. And so the Edomites follow in through the gates of Jerusalem. They wreak havoc. And this is what we're reading about this morning, right? Both in Psalm 137 and also here in Obadiah. We're reading about the fact that the Edomites came in and took Jerusalem. Now, I will say, just, just, for, just so you're aware, there's a lot of debate about the book of Obadiah because the writer of Obadiah does not tell us exactly when this book was written. Um, so there are some scholars out there uh, that make a case that Obadiah chronologically should actually be the first of the minor prophets, like even before Judah, that it was written hundreds of years before where we're actually placing it today. But, but I really believe, and I think m- most scholars think that 
The book of Obadiah best fits where we're placing it today because the, what we see here and, and the way that it specifically refers to Jerusalem being overrun and it specifically ref, like refers to the role that the Edomites played in that, that, that it fits best chronologically where we're putting it today. And it makes the most sense that it would have been written um, right around that same time period. So what did the Edomites do when they came in? Well, they did whatever any other invading army would do at this point in time. They utterly destroyed everything. They burned down and tore down buildings. Uh, They killed children. They killed pregnant women. There was horrific brutality. And this was just sort of par for the course in the ancient world. It wasn't just the Babylonians. It wasn't just the Edomites. The Assyrians did the same sort of thing. At at least five points in the Old Testament, the killing of infants is referenced. Um, We see the same thing taking place in the Iliad. If you've ever read Homer before, the exact same kind of stuff is going on there. Um, In many ways, historians just see this as having been common practice at the time for people who were at war with each other. So so when the psalmist prayed in Psalm 137, when he prayed for basically what Edom had done to them to be returned to them, like for what they had done to also be done to them, it wasn't like the random ramblings of some bloodthirsty psychopath. No, no, no. These were the grief-stricken expressions of sadness and anger that the psalmist felt because of the horrific things that had been done to them. And, and you would feel the same way if someone had done that to your children, right? Like, unless you are Jesus himself, you would feel anger and rage and grief. And so we have to read this, as we've said before, as, as, as being representative of the full spectrum of human emotion that we see in the psalms. The Psalms are not high and lofty, like they are not rose-colored, like they truly do include things that we maybe sometimes feel within us, but that we don't disclose to other people, things that we maybe think but don't share, that we push down. The psalmists somehow share these things in honesty with the Lord and also praise and worship him at the same time. But notice the psalmist is leaving any retribution up to God. He's not not saying, God, make it so I can do this to them. He's recognizing that retribution belongs to the Lord. But then Obadiah steps in, and he, in his book, proclaims a prophecy against Edom. In the same way that Habakkuk, who we just read, proclaimed a prophecy against Babylon. In Habakkuk 2, he says, Edom's days are numbered, right? Ultimately, Babylon's going to be destroyed. Ultimately, Edom's going to be destroyed as well. And notice that this prophecy connects with the psalmist as well. He says, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Like, that's, that's the exact same thing that Jeremiah is praying. God, would, would you return this to them? And here Obadiah says, yeah, that's what's going to happen. So uh, not a particularly uplifting book, right? And yet the the message here is that basically all the nations are guilty before God. 
The day of the Lord, he says, is coming for all nations. It's not just some, it's everybody. And what's interesting is Israel and Judah are not removed from this, right? Like as, as these things are being declared against nations like Babylon and nations like Edom, the same thing's going on for Judah. Like they are experiencing punishment. Like they are experiencing the result of their deeds and the ways that they've turned their backs on the Lord. All nations are guilty before God, but the focus is Edom, who would be utterly destroyed, and they were. Several centuries later, they were ultimately destroyed at the hands of the Romans. And Judah, also guilty before God, yet, even though they face punishment, God honors his covenant with them and does not destroy them completely. And as we know, they get carried away into exile, but ultimately, a remnant is allowed to return and repopulate the land. He preserves them even in the midst of punishment. So, other than a history lesson here, why should we read this book, right? Of what relevance is it to us? A few thoughts on that. One, God is not unaware of wickedness in our world. God is not unaware of wickedness. Even though you and I look around us and see terrible things in our world, even though many of us have experienced terrible, heinous things in our own lives. God is not unaware of it. Genocide, racial injustice, abortion, child abuse, slavery, terrorism. Make your list of the things that you consider to be the most heinous things. God sees all of those things on an entirely different level than we see them. Right? I can go to Rwanda and I can walk into one of these monuments built out of the bones of people who were killed, but, but God literally sees all of these things not as bones but as souls, as people made in his image in a way that I can't. And, and I can't imagine like, like the, the horror and the terror that, that even I can experience about something that happened 20 years prior. Just think it... Think about how God experiences that as the creator. God sees these things on an entirely different level. And one of the major messages of the minor prophets is that God will punish the wicked. God will punish the wicked, even when the wicked are his own people. Go back to the book of Amos. We saw the prophet talk about all the sins of the nations around Israel, including Edom, by the way. And what God would do to them. We saw prophecy against Assyria in Nahum. If there is a central theme in these books, it is that God will punish the wicked, but that the righteous shall live by faith. This was our responsive reading this morning, by the way. Did you notice this? What did the psalm say? Those who take refuge in the Lord will not be condemned. Right? That's the qualifying statement. Like, do you look at the Lord and see him as somebody to be rebelled against? Somebody whom I don't care if, if he's even real or what he thinks. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to follow my own path no matter what that means. Or do you see the Lord as somebody who truly has the power to save? Do you find your refuge in the Lord? The psalmist says anyone who finds his refuge in the Lord will not be condemned. God will punish the wicked, but the righteous shall live by faith, not because they're sinless or perfect, but because they have faith in God. They have found their refuge in the Lord. But another takeaway for us comes from the Apostle Paul. If you would turn with me over to the book of Romans, 
How should we respond to the wickedness that we see around us? Like whether in our world, like in, in our life, or just at large in the world, the things we see on social media and on the news. Should we, should we just sit on our hands and do nothing? Like how do we respond to this stuff? So, so, so taking a cue from the teachings of Jesus, Paul addresses this and he tells the church, this is Romans 12, Romans 12, starting in verse 14. Romans 12, starting in verse 14. Here's what Paul tells the church in Rome. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, because sometimes it doesn't, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, don't allow the evil of other people to produce evil within you as a response to their evil, right? So as a model for how we are to live in our world today, Paul expounds on Jesus' command to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us by reminding us that vengeance is not ours to pursue, It's not up to us to seek retribution. It belongs to the Lord. And Obadiah reminds us that God keeps his word and he will keep his word to those who are truly unrepentant. But let us also not forget that God will also extend grace to those who respond to him in faith. Look with me over at Romans 5. Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified or made right by faith, we have peace now with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Because of what Jesus has done for us, now we're no longer like at war, you could say, with God. We're now at peace with God. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So now we have peace, we have grace, we have hope. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. We're not going to be put to shame if, if our hope is in the Lord, like if he is truly our refuge. It's all going to turn out well for us if that is what's going on in our lives. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, not for the godly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while 
while we might be inclined to see other people as the wicked, as being people who are just other than us, other people must be more sinful than we are, Paul reminds us that that's exactly who we are. Like, we are the wicked. Paul reminds us that all wickedness at its core is sin. Like, we use the word wickedness today to describe what we think of as the most heinous things. Like, that was incredibly wicked. But when the scripture uses the word wicked, it's talking about whatever is counter to God. Like, whatever is, in, whatever is counter to God is not righteous, it is wicked. So to that end, all are in need of a Savior. But only some, through faith, will stand in God's grace, as Paul says. He said, this is how we have peace. Meaning, this is how we escape his wrath. Unlike the Edomites, we escape from his wrath towards sin by placing our faith in Christ. He goes on, Romans 5, bear with me, starting in verse 9. He says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? From the wrath of God. By Jesus' blood, by faith in him, by experiencing his grace, We're not just saved from our sin. We're not just saved from death. Like, we're saved from God's wrath, God's anger towards wickedness. For if while we were enemies, verse 10, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So Paul says we were God's enemies. And you may not think of yourself in that way. You may not view yourself like that. But if you've ever pursued a way that was counter to the way of Christ, counter to God's way, your own path, not seeking your refuge in him, not placing your faith in him, then what Paul says is you were his enemy. And to his his readers, he's saying, this was all of us. He's not excluding himself from this. I was God's enemy too. I pursued a way that was counter to God's way. But even though that's who you were, Jesus died for you so that you didn't have to stay that way. So that the the enmity between you and God didn't have to continue. The barrier, the battle, the war between you and God didn't have to continue. Christ died for you. And when you step into that gospel truth through faith, everything changes. And I don't just mean like behaviorally or morally. Cosmically, everything changes for you. Existentially, everything changes for you. It's easy to see, I think, how Christ, through his work, is undoing what was set in motion in the garden with Adam and Eve. Like, ultimately, he is restoring all things to their original intent. That we would be a people who live with God, right? That we experience his presence, and that we're not not at odds with each other. Like we're living in unity and harmony with each other. This is ultimately what Jesus is bringing to fruition through his sacrifice, that we would be in union with God, that we would dwell with him as his children forever. 
But listen, Christ is also, through his death and resurrection, undoing this theme of brother against brother that we see starting with Cain and Abel and going to Isaac and Ishmael and going to Jacob and Esau and continuing on and on and on and on and on throughout the ages, including into some of our lives as well. The theme that has shaped for, for the worse a great majority of, of human history and existence. The writer of Hebrews says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Cain destroyed brotherhood through murdering his brother Abel. The descendants of Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau have battled each other for centuries, all seeking to put an end to the other. But what Christ does is the opposite. What Christ does is he shows up and he doesn't go to war against his enemies. He sacrifices himself so that his enemies can become his brothers. It's the complete antithesis of everything that human beings have been doing from the beginning. Sacrificing himself so that his enemies can become his brothers, children of God, beloved sons and daughters, can be freed from our enslavement to sin, the sin that would even pit us against each other in the first place, against other human beings. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite C.S. Lewis books, it's called The Weight of Glory. Um, If you've never read it, it's incredible. But one of the things he says, and this always sticks with me, I was thinking about it this week as I was reading through this. What C.S. Lewis says in that book is, there are no ordinary people You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, those things are mortal, he says. Like, and their life is like the life of a gnat. Those things will pass away. But he says, it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. We are made in God's image. And we are made to reflect his glory to the watching world. And we forget that completely. We posture ourselves as being superior to other people. We demean other people. As he said, we exploit other people. We sin against other people. We seek the end of other people. We hate other people. Some we love. Some we desire good for. Some we seek to bless. But we're real picky and choosy, aren't we? And what Lewis is getting at is that we forget that everybody we encounter is made in the image of God. The girl Justin encountered at his inspection this week was made in the image of God. Everybody. Everybody is somebody who the Lord through Christ is seeking to redeem. Like to to call to himself. People who he he wants them to seek their refuge in him. The people in your life, in your life who you dislike or hate or love or honor or betray or forgive, these are all people that are, that are different from the other animals, right? That God did something special. And thus they're people for whom Christ has died. Even when they were sinners. And it is to them that the call of God from the beginning is love, to love them as we love ourselves. That what would be done to them is what has been done to us through Christ. 
Paul says, if you've experienced the love and forgiveness of Christ, one of the things that has changed for you is that you have now become an ambassador of that same love and forgiveness to everyone around you. Everyone. Your kids, your spouse, your neighbors, your coworkers, everyone. Christ alive in you, drawing others to salvation, reconciling people who have been enemies with God through you and me, through the beauty of his gospel. Let's give him thanks for that this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. And even in the midst of horrific things, in the ways that we have treated each other, not only in the here and now, but throughout history, God, we recognize that you are opposed not only to us acting ugly to each other, or violently to each other, God, but you are, you are truly opposed to us acting in any way that is counter to your way. Acting in any way in which we act independent of you. Or as if, as if every knee won't bow to you. Or every tongue won't confess that you are God. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we've done that in our lives. And I pray, God, that truly everyone here would be reconciled to Christ through faith. God, that we would not just seek to play religious games. God, that but we would truly put our faith in Christ as our only hope, as the one in whom we find our refuge. And that that would transform us. Not, not just our eternity, God, but, but that it would truly transform us into the ambassadors that you describe in your word. People who, who now get to manifest this love and grace to others around us. Father, forgive us when we don't have eyes to see the people around us as people who are just like us in that they are also deeply in need of your forgiveness, deeply in need of your grace and reconciliation. And God, especially in light of our text this morning, give us eyes for those for whom sometimes we have the hardest time loving, like those in our own family. And in some cases, the people who have hurt us the most deeply, those in our own family. The people who we perhaps have the least amount of forgiveness for. God, would you grow within us forgiveness? Would you breed within us a love for them despite the things that they've done or the ways that they've hurt us? God, would would you guide us in praying for them? In interceding on their behalf and seeking to bless them and not curse them. God, through our lives, even though we will do it imperfectly, Father, would you equip us through the power of your Holy Spirit to bring a manifestation of your gospel Help us to reconcile with the people around us, Father, and in doing so, demonstrate the reconciliation that you offer to us. Help us to live self-sacrificing lives, Father, so that others might see the gospel. Father, as much as it depends on us, help us to live peaceably with all those around us.
And even in the midst of our suffering, God, help us to see the ways that you are growing us and producing within us character. And not human character, but heavenly character. We love you, Father. We thank you for the truth of your word. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.